Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Welcome to Hashtag Gen Z. I'm your host, Megan Grace. Hashtag Gen Z is a podcast about, as you guessed it, Generation Z, the generation of young people born between 1995 and 2010. It's about who they are, what they believe in, why they do what they do, and what makes them different than any other generation. On this episode, we're chatting about how we come to understand generations, generational research, and some of my favorite parts of doing this work. Understanding generations is an interesting space to work in. Oftentimes, it starts with an observation and moves into developing an opinion. Sometimes those opinions are positive, and some not so much. And that's exactly how my journey with Generation Z started observations of student behavior. So it seems fitting that I'd start my podcasting journey with my first interview, the same person I started my journey with Generation Z, my research partner, co-author, and mentor, Dr. Corey C. Miller. Corey is an assistant professor in the Department of Leadership Studies in Education and Organizations at Wright State University. She's worked in higher education as an administrator and educator for over 20 years and is hands down one of the smartest people that I know. Corey's done some incredible work, both Gen Z related and not, And I'm lucky to even be just a part of some of that work. I met Corey when I was a graduate assistant working on my master's at the University of Arizona, Bear Down, Go Cats. And Corey was the director of our department. But we've come a long way since I was just an eager grad assistant. And I'm excited to share our story with you. I'd like to welcome my first guest to Hashtag Gen Z, the podcast, Dr. Corey C. Miller. Corey, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to chat today about something we're both very passionate and care a lot about. Well, great. Thanks, Megan, for having me. It's fun to actually have a conversation about kind of our journey, where we came from and what our thoughts are, because we spend so much time talking with each other about, you know, book writing and speaking and everything that sometimes we don't even have the time to sit down and talk about the things that really drove us to the work that we do. So this is really exciting to, to, to be a part of this. It is. It's fun to kind of look back and reflect, um, even though it doesn't feel like it's been that long. So much has happened. And it's funny, like we do talk almost every day. I feel like I talk to you more than I talk to my parents. Don't tell them that. Uh, they'll probably hear this. So <laughs> So let's just dive right in on this fun, reflective journey. I know I get asked this quite often. Um, I get asked how I started researching and writing about Generation Z. I think a lot of people are just, you know, it's it's not your traditional career path. Let's just put it that way. But I would love to to hear from your kind of point of view. I know I have mine of how we started this journey and really how this party started with Gen Z. <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny because it's been just almost five years since uh, since my initial interest in this. 
it was the summer of 2013. And, you know, Megan, as you can remember, we would spend many a summers um, at our former institution out recruiting students for our leadership programs at our summer orientation. And I just remember that summer was different. I mean, I had done this for over a decade and I was like, this is something is just different about this group of students that's coming to our table, asking questions, the kinds of questions they were asking. Something just kind of struck a chord with me that, that just, just felt like a different group of people. And while we know that, you know, generations don't, you know, have a real hard and fast start and stop date, really, we we do know that, you know, there are characteristics that that really define their behaviors. And so what was interesting was that I was I was so kind of taken aback by how different they were that I went and looked it up. I went online and I started Googling anything I could. I tried to find, you know, is there a you know full moon happening? I, I, I could not figure out what was happening. Is Mercury in retrograde? Like what was happening? We don't know. Right. Exactly. I mean, I tried to look up everything I could and I did come across uh, some information about generations and a breakdown of different age groups. And I noticed we were ending what was deemed to be the millennials at the time and starting this new generation, which the placeholder name at the time was Generation Z, which we've come now to use much more frequently. But it was interesting to start looking up a little bit about who these um, youth were, because they were at the time, they were, you know, 17, 18 at the oldest. So that would have made them coming to college. And some of the things that I was reading about were really describing the students that I interacted with. And so I, I did as much research as I could online, which was just really putting together youth reports and Pew data and market research stuff that was out there about really how to sell stuff to kids and tried to make meaning of it about, okay, what does this mean when they come to college? And I remember putting together a handout for our staff and said, we got to talk about this because we got to be ahead of, of the curve. And at that point, it was just, it was more interesting just to help us in the work that we do. But I had no idea at the time, even with that interest, that this would turn into kind of a long-term career path in so many ways of discovery around this particular generation. And I remember, Megan, you were really eager at the beginning to say, hey, I want to jump on board with you on this. I'm really interested in this as well. And I remember early meetings with you and I where we were planning on, you know, um, putting together our own study and figuring out what is what does this mean for higher education now that they're actually here. And so I know that it wasn't, you know, it was pretty shortly after I had gathered some stuff that, that you had jumped on board. And I know the rest of our staff kept thinking, you know, okay, well, here they go. This sounds fun for them. <laughs> and we were like, all right, this is really interesting. Don't you think this is so fascinating? And and then I think, and then this, the story kind of unfolds from there. But that, that was my recollection. I, I think that the story is writing itself because we, we can't really, as much as I wanted to get out in front of this generation at the time, we are always a half a step behind because they are shaping our research. They are shaping our speaking and our writing because of the things that they do and the way that they see the world. And so we have a lot of work to do, always kind of trailing behind them with our microphones and video cameras and saying, what do you think? What do you think? And it's made for a very interesting journey. Oh, I agree. And talking about our journey together has been so interesting because I, people always ask like, what, how did you get involved in this? And I'm always like, oh, I just raised my hand in a staff meeting and here we are. So it's like, always say yes to something. You never know where it'll take you. But you started to, to kind of touch about our research. And I think our research is fascinating. And when we started this, 
our journey with Generation Z, I was so averse to research and here we are and now I live for it. But I think we do get some questions about where our research comes from. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about that. And you're really good at kind of summarizing our studies. But generational research is just fascinating to most people. They love to be able to categorize and they love to be able to describe things that they're observing in a very uh, digestible way. And I think that's something that we've started to to provide through our research. And I can say from my perspective and experience, it's been an exciting ride working on generational research. You, you hit it right on the head that it's always changing and things are, we're getting more and more research coming out about this topic. And today we've conducted two of our own studies on Generation Z, which has been so cool to be a part of. But we I get questions about like how we started where we started to develop our our ideas around our research and, and how we did it. So you, would you like to share a little bit about what has inspired our research and really how our studies have been structured and how we conducted them? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, what's interesting about this whole thing is I think, you know, Megan, back both when you and I were getting involved in this, our, our main initiative was just out of pure curiosity and, and maybe seeing, okay, what what is this information going to mean for the work that we do? A little bit more kind of present and a little bit more um, contextual to like our day-to-day work. I don't think when I was putting together a handout in the summer of 2013, I was thinking that here I am almost five years later recording a podcast with you about all of our research and writing. It's just, it's, it's fascinating like that. And so I think that that was the mentality that we went into with the first study was let's try to figure out a little bit about this cohort now that they've you know, they're coming to college They that, you know, that very first cohort had already been through one year of college. And we looked at the fall 2014 first year cohort, which would have kind of given us a clean sample of people born mostly in 1996 at that point in time, some in 1995. But I remember going into that, that our goal wasn't necessarily to, you know, get 100,000 respondents and create this massive data set for everyone to make judgments about Generation Z, it was simply to see, is there anyone out there that would be willing to send a link to their students in this age group so we could just find out more than we know? I mean, that is the purpose of research. And and as a researcher, um, I've learned that knowing even a little bit more than we did before is so helpful than not knowing anything. And our first study, we had, we're the very first people to say it. We had 15 institutions, not broadly representative, nor highly generalizable. Our sample was under a thousand. Yet, when you compare it to many of the market research reports out there, it was actually bigger than many of them at the time. But still, we weren't claiming to make some kind of huge sweeping generalizations. But what we were doing was trying to figure out, you know, what what is different maybe about this generation? One of the things that I'm not sure that we we intentionally knew the impact of the foresight of, but have now realized was including qualitative questions where we, instead of asking students just simply like, what digital platforms do you use or what social media apps do you use? We ask them things like, why do you do things? How do you do them? What is your preference? And we really got to hear the, the, the hows and the whys behind their stories. And so by the time we ended up writing our first book, although our research and our, our quantitative research played into that, just like many other studies, we accessed dozens and dozens and dozens of other studies of quantitative research. They were The really interesting thing was that when you put all of these next to each other, these small studies, like our study, in addition to a number of other studies, they were all saying much of the same thing, which as a researcher, that's kind of the golden ticket, right? Is you find themes across all these studies. Well, at the same time, we had um, gotten a data set from the Higher Education Research Institute at UCLA to get their fall of 2014 first year student of the students who take the SERP survey 
And we had them narrow it down to just students who were born in the Generation Z age range. And so that yielded us more than 150,000 participants in that data set, which had many of the same kinds of questions other studies, including ours, were asking. And so when we were able to lay them all next to each other, including that SERP study of more than 150,000 respondents, again, we found so many themes. And then our qualitative data was able to explain those themes, to give voice to the students that were being studied across all of these studies. So for us, I think that qualitative piece has been really critical, so much so that when we decided to do our second study last spring, uh, well, it was uh, fall 2016, spring 2017, we ended up basically doing mostly qualitative. I mean, we did ask some quantitative demographic questions at the beginning, but we asked seven open-ended questions just about their perspectives and of life, you know, what what you know motivates you to get up in the morning. You know, what what issues do you see that your generation will face in thirty years? And and we called it the Stories Project. And some answers from some some individuals were very very short, and some of them were incredibly long. But we were able to get um, fifty different colleges and universities across the United States, and we had a, a couple in Canada and one in Mexico actually participate in our study. So it was a considerably more representative than our first one. And, you know, we were, depending on the responses, we were, we were looking at, you know, thousands of stories of these, that these students put forth. So for us, that qualitative piece is really what I think sets us apart. There's a lot of great quantitative research out there and already preset data sets, the general social survey, and again, the higher education research institute information. There's all of those things are out there and we didn't necessarily need to completely replicate that quantitative piece, but the stories behind these students' perspectives are fascinating. And some of the things that you would determine from just reading the quantitative results are completely explained differently when they start telling the stories behind why they see things a certain way. And so for us, I think it's been an incredible, rich and complex experience in trying to understand this generation because once you start adding their voice into those numbers and into those click boxes on your surveys, you get a whole different feel about what they see and how they feel about the world around them. Yeah, it's incredible to see our research especially get supported by the findings of other other research groups. And that's a really cool thing. And the stories piece that you've brought up is incredible. I, I feel like every time I'm reading their words in our story study, I get to know them a little bit better than just seeing a statistic or something from a quantitative story or a quantitative study. And that's a big piece of, you know, the inspiration behind this podcast is understanding the stories of Generation Z even further and giving them a voice. And I think that's a huge piece. And that kind of moves into, we're going to talk about understanding generations in a little bit, the individual nature of of people within a generation. But as you've mentioned, we have a ton of data and we're really lucky for that to be able to have that within our work and be able to share that with other people. And I know that I've got my favorite piece of data that we've collected over the years, um, but I would want to know, do you have a favorite finding from our research? Yes, I do. It's um, it's it's funny because this has been just such a fascinating finding for me. So one of the things, um, having been a higher education professional for more than 20 years, you know, you, you can see when generations come in and out, what they bring with them. And one of the things that, uh, that we noticed when millennials were coming to college and, and you know, in the, the late 1990s, kind of early 2000s era, a lot of them came in with a very strong service-minded ideal, right? They wanted to be able to uh, engage in their community service and volunteerism when they got to campus. And so you saw this, this growth of, 
you know, volunteer offices and service learning and classes and in the college setting. And so, you know, I was under the assumption that we were going to continue on that trend and that, that and, and some people have even alluded to Generation Z as being hyper millennials, right? This idea that they are millennials, you know, and more. And I was thinking that, that okay, if millennials volunteer 10 hours a week, then Gen Z is going to come in and want to do 20 hours a week. But what ended up happening was one of our findings that we not only did we get in the research, but we've seen in practice is that they're really more of a social change minded generation and, and, le- and less of a kind of a service minded generation. So they would rather eradicate the underlying problems facing their communities than go in and actually address the symptoms of those. So what that looks like in practice, and we've seen this and they've indicated this on a lot of the, the data we've collected and other, other studies have found, is that they're not volunteering at rates like we were used to seeing with millennials, not going in and doing short-term volunteer experiences, maybe not doing, maybe it's not as many on service trips and colleges, those kinds of things. And a lot of them said that they volunteered because they were required to volunteer, which sort of is a kind of a paradox in and of itself. And so what we're also seeing though is that they're they're not really voting either. And that's fascinating because we, we saw that before the 2016 election. And since that election, the data has pointed that they're they're voting, their cohort voted, you know, is voting in, in lower rates, not necessarily versus older populations, but versus other 18 to 21 year old populations when, you know, they were first time voters. And so we're seeing this and it almost looks like if you look from just the outside, it looks like a lack of civic engagement. But again, going back to this idea where we're hearing their stories and their perspectives, we're finding out what is really going on. It's not that they're not civically engaged, they're highly civically engaged. They're just going about it in a very different way. They're, you know, you're seeing, uh, you can see in the news almost every day, you know, some youth inventing some something, a life-saving device or a medical procedure or you know, whatever it might be, even a coffee mug that charges your cell phone. I mean, all sorts of really neat inventions are coming out of this particular generation. You're also seeing a lot of entrepreneurship, a desire for them to want to work for themselves or create socially responsible businesses. And so that in and of itself is civic engagement. They want to address the social issues of the world, not necessarily by volunteering or voting, but simply by entrepreneurship and invention. But what's been interesting to watch, and we we sort of have figured this out along in some of our early studies, was that that this generation at the time didn't really have a particular issue to rally around. They've inherited social issues from their predecessors. So everyone's saying, well, they're really, you know, they're all about climate change. Well, millennials, you know, for more recently, were really about climate change. And, and while, you know, we see Generation Z have some interest in that, that doesn't feel like their own issued. And so part of it is being civically engaged means also kind of owning that space of whatever that issue is. And we're really seeing that and watching this unfold. And I know we're watching it really closely when it, when we're looking at gun rights and gun control. And we're seeing youth really rallying around an issue where they might come out to vote. They might come out to volunteer and do some of those things that they have been kind of not doing because they, some may feel they have an issue to rally around. And so it'll be interesting to watch this whole thing unfold. But I think for me, it's been really this idea of what does civic engagement really mean to them and how are they doing it? And what will they continue to do in the future? What will they start doing? And maybe what will they stop doing in the future? So for me, that's really been profound. And and it's, again, like I said, unfolding right in front of our eyes. So that's been a lot of fun to see and, and follow. 
I think that you bring up a great point and I will probably have an entire episode on how they're creating change because we know that the way they're going about creating change is just fascinating and it's an evolving. And I, I love that that's your favorite finding. My favorite finding is how they learn through YouTube and the way that video is a medium for them to take in new knowledge. It's something that when we were looking in our first study about you know, how do you use YouTube? It was something where I was very shocked that they were like, oh, I'm using it to learn things. I 100% thought it was purely entertainment. And that really spurred a lot, something for me to think about for as an educator myself, but also when I am looking at trying to help other educators or think about how we deliver information and communicate with them, especially for important information. So I think that's my favorite finding. It's a little less, uh, you know, socially minded as yours, Corey, but I still think it's cool. Yeah. But you know what though, is they are blending these two. Yeah. You see a lot really of social are. media where these youth are getting their own YouTube channels and they are being able to kind of put forth their own social messages. So I, I think we're going to start seeing even more of a blending of some of these findings that make them even more unique than we've, we've even expected. Yeah. And, the, and a lot of what we talked about in our 2014 book is the way that they're engaging with social change is being informed and also educating others. So are they utilizing video as a medium to do that? I think that's going to be so, another place where we see that interaction. So, so I'm going to move into kind of a, a an area that's a little pat, like a, I'm more passionate about because I feel like as a millennial, um, there's a lot of discussion about my generation, or at least there has been in the last few years, if you will, that regardless of if it's accurate or based in research, there's been a lot of discussion and sometimes criticism. I think sometimes that discussion or criticism comes from a place of misunderstanding about what is a generation and how generations are formed and what generational research we can trust and really looking into it before we make an assumption about it. So so I would love kind of your perspective and my perspective as well to Corey about what, how we feel about taking some time to discuss how we view generations and how they what makes up a generation and what shapes a generation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is an important question that often gets left out of out of the whole narrative about generations. Um, I was I was reminiscing of the story not too long ago where I was at a former a former role and we had a professional development experience and we were all sitting there and we had a speaker come talk about millennials. And I remember sitting in the audience thinking, oh, seriously, you know, this there's nothing scientific about this. This is just categories and stereotypes. And I actually had the audacity after the talk to go up to the speaker and share my thoughts. And I think back to that and I'm, you know, and, and granted, it's all part of the journey and I do feel really, really badly. So if you are listening, I don't even remember the speaker's name, but I do apologize for that. But, you know, it's all part of this journey of kind of understanding what generational research even is. And it's been spun in so many ways to be this kind of trendy, kind of niche, fun thing to talk about. And so people have made everything from memes to archetypes and categories and all these things around it, which make it really digestible. In some ways, that's been excellent. But some of these, not all of them, but some of these, you know, flashy reports and f funny blogs and whatever it might be are, are not really grounded in anything empirical and there's no real data behind them or they're taking secondary sources from somewhere else and spinning it to be in a in a particular topic area that they want to write about. And so what's happening is in some ways what people are consuming is not necessarily what people are producing in ter in terms of generational research because just about everybody has their take on it. I mean if, if you want to see this, I mean literally google the word millennials and you're going to get so many hits about everybody who has their own take on it. And, and while this has made it fun and interesting and in some ways relevant, it's also made it really hard to be an actual 
researcher that it works with like really sound methodology behind the scenes to try to actually understand a demographic. Because at the end of the day, general research, generational research is really just demographic research. It's like taking a population of people and studying who they are. It could be, you know, people who live in Arizona and you do a study and you look at the people who live in Arizona. That's just a population of people. We do that all the time with research. But as soon as we do it around age, people get either they get skeptical about it or they get super excited and want to stereotype and then make fun reports and little, you know, caricatures of of different groups of people. And really where generational research lies is in a different space. It's just yet another way of better understanding a group of people. The, The difference though, and this is what I find fascinating, is that generational research studies both age and stage. And so unlike looking at maybe people who live in Arizona as a group, you know, that's a fairly static group. We're looking at potentially people who are late teens, early 20s that fall into this particular date range, but we're looking at them in the context of this time of their lives. Now, if we were to follow them all the way through until they're in their 50s, they're going to look really different, even though it's the same exact cohort of people. And so that's where it gets really, really tricky, but it also gets really fun because you can follow a group all the way through their their progression, or you can compare cohorts. This is a great, you know, a lot of people do cohort comparisons where we look at maybe 18 to 21 year olds today versus 18 to 21 year olds 20 years ago. Um, And what are the differences and similarities? So I think that what's really key here is that as people are consuming this data, and that's what we do is we consume the information, is really understanding where, where does the information come from? A lot of times, even in our own work in trying to write our books, where we include lots and lots and lots of other studies, our books are, are not are just about our own studies, but lots of other studies is once you start to look at the methodology behind it, you say, okay, well, this was a, a phone poll of 167 kids and they all happen to live in Philadelphia. It's like, okay, well, maybe that isn't, the findings from that are not really more generalizable, but the flashy report makes it look really, really good. But the the data behind it isn't really grounded in like a methodological approach that we would use to kind of look at a larger sense of this particular generation. So it's been a challenge, I think, for us because we really want to be out in this space about generational research and speaking and writing, but we're, we're faced with a lot of skepticism, rightfully so, because there's a lot of stuff out there. And we even know that our own methodologies have lots of limitations. We, we even address that in our Generation Z Goes to College book, because I think it's any methodology that doesn't have a limitation is probably not accurate. I mean, every methodology has some type of a limitation. And so I think it's really important as we consume this stuff, and even as we produce it, being responsible generational researchers is thinking being very, very upfront about what our methodologies are, and then even thinking to what extent do we feel like we need to have a certain number of people before we can even report on something. You know, having 100 or 200 people might not be as methodologically grounded. So as you can see, Megan, you know, obviously you and I have talked quite a bit about this. Oh, yes, we have. And I find it as both a frustration and, uh, but what we're doing is we spend a lot of time on the, the research behind what we do. And we pride ourselves on, on our robust uh, methodologies to the best that we can do. So, but my call, my, my, my final piece of this is, is my call to others who have an interest in generational research is, you know, thinking about how you might go out and engage in responsible, ethical 
research around this generation and reporting it in ways that are going to be helpful and useful for lots of people. And I just, I I call to more of you who might be out there with that interest in doing this as more than just kind of a one-time thing, but actually really looking at this generation deeply. We could certainly use more folks in the field that are uh, looking at Generation Z because the millennials have been very studied and we definitely need some folks who are interested in studying Generation Z. Yeah. If you want to join us, come. It's a party. Um, (laughs) No, I think that that's a good point is we always have our own bias on our research and how we design our studies, I think from, from our perspective, like we're always looking at how do we create better in educational environments and whether that's in a classroom or in a workplace or whatever that looks like, just naturally we're educators. So we're always going to have our own personal bias on the research we're doing. But I think that's something that we take into consideration as we're looking at other people's research, whether that's coming from a marketing standpoint or it's coming just from a, a demographic standpoint. So, the, I mean, you summed it up really well, Corey, of, you know, looking at generational research. It's so fun. It's so fascinating. It's so interesting to learn about large groups of people and and how they're behaving and what's motivating them. But we do have to look at it with a little bit of skepticism, looking at a little bit of where's the methodology coming from? Where's their motivation and inspiration coming from? So I think that that's an interesting piece of it because there are, there are a lot of people working in the generational space and some of the research is great and some of it not so much. And so I think that that's some great advice that we can give listeners and we can give readers of our research and other people's research that, you know, we have to, to think where is it coming from? What's the motivation? And is this truly representative? Because I mean, we see a lot of generational research that'll be like, yes, my my one 15-year-old cousin told me fill in the blank piece of data. And you know, we can't make an assumption about an entire generation based on one 15-year-old. They can give us a good pulse uh, of that and, and start to, to be a good observation of it. So it's again, it's blending of the quantitative research and the qualitative research to 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 paint a truer picture, I think, is is what we I know that I am very motivated to do. And Corey, I believe that you're in the same boat, but is there anything that you think that people need to be cautious of, you know, when they're looking at generational research? I mean, I think the the first and foremost is, is before you even read the report or read the story, look at the, what the methodology is. I know that a lot of people will uh, like you can you can find stories online, you know, and it's like a really catchy title and it's interesting. And you're reading through about Generation Z, and sometimes you'll it'll you'll be lucky enough to find a hyperlink in there that says, you know, according to the recent study, and that's hyperlink. Just skip right to the study, and I, I appreciate the writers, and many of them are spot on, and they've done a really good job interpreting the study, but you also have to remember that every single time that you allow someone else to interpret data for you, there's always going to be a bias, no matter how good they are at it. So click on that. It's just like basically a cheat sheet. You click on that and it'll take you right to the study and you can find the results yourself in in many cases, or at least the write-up of them from the agency who did them. So I think one of those things that I caution people on is just don't take things at face value and kind of look a little bit further. I mean, one of the things that we have with our Generation Z Goes to College book and our Generation Z Leads book is we have both a notes section and a references section. And we encourage people to go and look at the primary sources that we looked at, because it is important that while we have tried to sum up things, that you are able to see um, what is actually there and how that might apply to the work you do. So I would say, you know, always go and look at the source if you can, that's going to give you the best data. Yeah. Well, and you know, Megan, you were bringing it up earlier is this idea of bias is who's writing the report and what do they get for it? And and I again, this comes from bias, uh, all sorts of looking through the lens of bias, but look at who the authors are or what agency it's coming out of, which leads me to the point of a lot of people who are writing about generational research are doing so in the context of working for an agency in which they want to sell things or, or basically 
put forth their their own agenda, which is important because, I mean, as an, as an organization, you, you need to do that. You and I are freestanding researchers. We don't have a stake in the game um, working for any organization. And so you might see a, you know, a, a restaurant do put out a report about how much Generation Z likes their food over other restaurant food. You have to take that with a grain of salt because they have an agenda. And it's important to remember that because every writer has an agenda. And I'm not picking on these groups. They are doing exactly what they need to be doing. But we all have our biases. And so it's important to think about who the authors are of these reports as well. I agree. It's really interesting to see. It'll be like, yeah, Burger King put out a report about how much Gen Z loves Burger King. Well, of course, you know, there's nothing against Burger King. I would want to know if they like my burgers as well. So (laughs) it's it's interesting where we're also finding a lot of our studies, like found a study on Generation Z's reading habits, and it was produced by Scholastic. So it's going to be about books. It's fascinating. It's fascinating information about youth or their reading. Um, So yeah, it's, it's interesting to see where reports are coming from and where we can start to find this information and how we go about it. And so kind of want to move into talking about why we love talking about Generation Z and why we love learning about Generation Z. I think personally, it's been fascinating to not talk about millennials for once. And maybe that's just a little bit self-serving and very me generation to do that. Um, But Corey, what do you love learning about Generation Z? Why do you love doing this work? Well, I love it because I teach them. So they're in my classrooms. I work with them in different campus roles. And I even parent a Gen Zer. So I have a vested interest in in this particular generation. I mean, as I do with all generations, but this particular one is just so fascinating to me. And I I, I like the the shift in mentality. We we've seen something a little different than we've seen before, and it's it's been fun to kind of um, in some ways grow up with them. And I'm just inspired. I'm inspired by them. And I, I'm constantly, as you know, Megan, I'm constantly forwarding you articles about things that Gen Zers are doing. I mean, I forwarded you one just yesterday about, you know, how students are, you know, dealt with the walkout. And I think it's really, really interesting because every time I read about them and what they're doing, it's like I get excited and I want to do that too. I want to follow them in some ways. And, you know, that's, that's, you know, youth in general can be very inspirational because in some sense they're naivete and their fresh look at the world. I, I mean, I get that, but this generation just feels different to me and I'm surrounded by them in so many aspects of my life that it has just been so interesting to, like I said, just literally grow up alongside them. And so of course I love to talk about them at every chance I get. And, and even further, it makes it so fun to talk about because not a lot of people are. I mean, there's more stuff out today than ever before, but we've talked a lot about millennials. I'm a Gen Xer. We didn't get talked about quite as much because we weren't doing a lot of generational research at that time, but I'm sort of uh, fatigued a little bit and ready to talk about a different group of people. And so that's been also really a lot of fun for me. It's just kind of jumping in and saying, you, what do you mean? You, you've never heard of Generation Z, that let me tell you about them because they're really, really a neat generation. I agree with you. I think that they're just fascinating. And maybe again, it's probably coming from, thank goodness we're talking less about millennials. But I think a lot of my, what I love talking about Generation Z, it comes from the fact that I think there's an interesting synergy around this group. And something we write a lot about how older generations have influenced in and really set a stage that, you know, they have the the social minded passion for making the world a better place it is is similar to millennials but they also question authority similar to gen x and i think that it's really interesting to see a synergy of this all come together and then you couple in technology and the tools that they have afforded to them to really do incredible work i mean there's times when i look at members of generation z and i'm like wow you're so much cooler than i was at 19 or i would never have dreamed to utilize my high school years to be 
addressing a social change in my my local community. Um, and I think that there's this level of confidence that I am just so amazed by and not even in a, wow, you're overly confident. I wish I had that confidence at that age. And I think that's what fascinates me and makes this work so interesting. But also I joke like I'm spreading the good word about Gen Z because I think that we when we start to look at a generation in a more positive sense in a way of like, how do we harness their strengths? It allows older generations to put these young these younger people in a place for them to thrive and make positive positive impact in our world. And I think that's just an interesting conversation that I'm excited to continue to to spread with the podcast and spread with our work and our research and talking with people all over the place. And I think that's my favorite thing about the work that we get to do. I absolutely agree. And you know, what's interesting too, is that, you know, one of the things that I know, Megan, you and I get a lot of questions about, or even sometimes a lot of challenges about is that we have too positive of a view of, of this generation. And that, you know, they, they do, there are downsides, just like every generation. And we do write about those. And we do speak about those. Those are absolutely important to address. But at the same time, I, I want to feel refreshed and inspired by them, because that helps us leverage their talents and their capacities to do good. Um, rather than continue to talk about yet another young group of people who are dot, dot, dot. And so for me, by kind of shifting into this kind of positive thinking around them, I, I feel like we can c- harness that, just like you were saying, harness that. So maybe some of their weaknesses or things that we might need to support them can be things we can address just simply by viewing them in positive ways. And so by having that outset in the way that we really look at this generation has helped us in being able to communicate to others that, hey, give this group a chance. These these are really inspirational, motivated, engaged young people that want to make a difference. And let's all work together um, with them to to be a part of that. It's, it's um, this idea that criticism of an entire generation has never really changed to the behavior of an entire generation. There's a ton of criticism around millennials killing industries, millennials doing this, that, or another. And it hasn't changed the way they're going about their behaviors. And so I don't know how far criticism will help us as older generations trying to engage a younger generation. Like we all exist in a multi generational world. Each of our generations has a unique culture. So we can't go about criticizing it. It's not going to change it. I don't think that an article saying that, you know, Generation Z, fill in the blank, is in whatever negative aspect about them is going to get sent to every member of Generation Z and they're going to stop doing that. I think that it's it's a matter of how do we recognize the dif- those differences and how do we find a way to work and, and bridge a gap between those differences. So that is probably my favorite part of being able to do this work. And Corey, I can't thank you enough for coming on and, and chatting about our research and our journey and our story. And it, it is, it's just beginning. And that's an interesting thing to say because we have been, we've been on this train for five years. And I know that there's so many exciting things on the horizon for us and our research and continuing to to build this picture around Generation Z. And so Corey, I'm so thankful for your time today. Thanks, Megan, again for having me on. I really appreciate the time getting to catch up with you like this. Yeah. I mean, we talk every day, but this is kind of fun. <laughs> yes. I hope you enjoyed hearing about our story with Generation Z and some of our perspectives on our work. And in the next episode, I'll be discussing social media, just a pretty casual topic when it comes to Generation Z. But I'll be chatting with one of my favorite content creators, Natalie Riso, one of LinkedIn's top student voices. There is so much more fun to be had, so don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date with new episodes and new content coming your way because you don't want to miss anything. But if there's something you'd like me to explore and chat more about on this podcast, head over to my website, meganmgrace.com, and drop me a line. So let's continue this conversation about Gen Z. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll chat soon.
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.